Welcome to the Master of Divinity podcast. I'm Michael Quayman, and I will be your guide through this, our seventh course in an ongoing series. Today we begin our second course in the practice of ministry, the first being our look at worship a few episodes ago. Also called practical theology, you might say there is nothing more practical for believers than pastoral care. As the song goes, they will know we are Christians by our love, a love that begins when we care for others. Thank you for joining me. Before we begin to recount the history of pastoral care, it seems appropriate to map out the next four episodes and offer you a definition of our discipline. The history of pastoral care, this episode, will take as uh, its starting point a barbecue on a Galilean beach, and then explore pastoral care from Roman times down to today. Pastoral care in the Bible will return to scriptural examples and explore the foundation of the discipline. Models of pastoral care will examine some of the theory behind various approaches to pastoral care. And final episode in this series, the pastoral visit, uh, will include a primer on visiting and an example of how to get started. Following the work of Klebsch and Jekyll, pastoral care is the means by which the church attends to the healing, sustaining, guiding, and reconciling ministry of Jesus Christ. So remember these four, healing, sustaining, guiding, and reconciling as we move forward. This ministry is also described as intentional fellowship, best explained by St. Paul to the church at Philippi. He wrote, If you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any fellowship with the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and in purpose. That's from Philippians 2. And so, as brothers and sisters in Christ, we care for one another and we attend to the koinonia of the gathered community. Koinonia is one of those uh, Greek words that means a great deal in just eight letters. It's usually translated as fellowship, but it means much more. Healing the wounds we carry, caring for one another, guiding each other, and seeking to be reconciled with each other and the world. Now, perhaps in your mind's eye, you have imagined pastoral care as belonging only to ministers, in the role of pastor in the body of Christ. And while pastoral care is at the center of a call to ordered ministry, we believe, following Luther, that pastoral care belongs to the priesthood of all believers. And besides, the first practitioners of pastoral care, the first example of koinonia, happened among the disciples of Jesus, and there wasn't an ordained minister in sight. 
Paul isn't asking. He's pleading with the church at Philippi to make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and purpose. It is love in the church, the love of Christ, that creates fellowship, koinonia. So let me share one biblical example of pastoral care, a story familiar to some, one of the resurrection appearances recorded in John. Jesus told them from the beach to cast their nets on the other side. With this, they made their way ashore to meet the risen Lord. And when they landed, they saw a fire of burning coals there with some fish on it and some bread. Jesus said to them, Bring some of the fish you've just caught. Simon Peter climbed aboard and dragged the net ashore. It was full of large fish, 153, but even with so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, Come and have breakfast. None of the disciples dared ask him, Who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came, took the bread, and gave it to them, and did the same with the fish. This was now the third time Jesus appeared to his disciples after he was raised from the dead. When they had finished eating, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you truly love me more than these? Yes, Lord, he said, you know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my lambs. Again, Jesus said, Simon, son of John, do you truly love me? He answered, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said, take care of my sheep. The third time he said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was hurt because Jesus asked him a third time, Do you love me? He said, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Jesus said, Feed my sheep. In this one short passage, Jesus attends to each of the four aspects of pastoral care we looked at a moment ago. To heal the broken spirits of his followers, Jesus reaches out a handful of times. These appearances won't continue, but soon Jesus will ascend to God. But for now, he will heal them with his presence. To sustain them, he feeds them. A variation on the Lord's Supper with fish and bread. This is his body offered to his followers, and the fish, the first symbol of the Christian church, reminds them of the many ways they have been fed. Feeding the 5,000, the bountiful catch, and the invitation to be fishers of women and men. To guide them, he reminds them of their primary task, feed my sheep. Soon the shepherd of the sheep will return to God, and the task of the church will be to bring Psalm 23 to life. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. The final pastoral care motif we find in this passage is reconciliation. The, the three questions, Simon, son of John, do you love me, and so on, mirror three denials beneath the cross of Jesus. Jesus speaks the truth in love, to quote St. Paul, and allows Peter to be reconciled to himself and to others. In this, koinonia has been restored. Now let me take you back to our last course and argue that there are few proper villains in the history of the church 
quite like Julian the Apostate. Roman emperor for only two years, uh, 361 to 363, he managed to undo much of the work of the great Constantine and the emperors that followed. His project was simple, to return Rome to her pagan roots and in doing so restore her greatness. Like the famous Gibbon, 1,700 years later, who wrote The Decline and Fall of the Roman Empire, Julian was convinced that Christianity had weakened the empire. He restored pagan temples. He ended the state support given to bishops. And he even recalled heretical bishops in the hope of creating division. All the while, he wanted his own pagan priest to be more like Christian priests. Writing to a high priest in Galatia, he asks, Do we not observe that it is Christian benevolence to strangers, their care for the graves of the dead and the pretended holiness of their lives that have done most to increase atheism? I believe that we ought really and truly to practice every one of these virtues. Notice that the increase in atheism is the spread of the church, since Julian is a good pagan and we are the atheists. Even the pagan emperor wants his priests to care for the poor, tend to the graves, and by extension the families of those that mourn, and demonstrate some holiness. He doesn't write the song, but he more or less comes up with, they will know we are Christians by our love. And he's not the only one. Even hardened pagans noticed that Christians didn't follow the usual practice of tossing your loved one out the door once the plague arrived. Christians tended to the sick, encouraged each other, particularly women, and created a sense of community. Sociologist Rodney Stark argues that this care and community is the only way to understand the exponential growth of the early church in the first centuries after Christ. The Christian response to two major plagues in Rome had a profound effect on the population. He writes, had classical society not been disrupted and demoralized by these catastrophes, Christianity might never have become so dominant a faith. End quote. As we travel into the Middle Ages, we can't talk about pastoral care in the medieval church without reviewing the seven sacraments of the Roman Catholic tradition. Being Protestant and students of the Protestant Reformation, you know we enjoy only two, uh, baptism and communion, while the Roman Catholic Church still adheres to seven. So what are they? Baptism, confirmation, communion, confession, extreme unction, now called anointing the sick, ordination, and marriage. Uh, Don't worry if you don't know. It hasn't been required learning for Protestants since 1517. Uh, Luther, of course, only found two of these sacraments in the Bible, so he eliminated five to leave us with only baptism and communion. But before we leave the Middle Ages, it's important to see how at least three of these seven relate to pastoral care. Communion, the Lord's Supper, provides most, if not all, the healing, sustaining, guiding, and reconciling we began with in this episode. 
remembering the instruction to reconcile with your brother or sister before you approach the altar is the most obvious link, it also sustains us and acts as an important guide when we listen to the great thanksgiving prayer. And the healing that comes with communion seems self-evident. Confession is another, with reconciliation with God at the center of the act, along with the healing that comes when we're released from our sins. We are sustained when we practice confession on an ongoing basis, and we are guided by our confessor as a representative of the community. Extreme unction is the last of this group of three sacraments and an important part of the priest's work in the centuries before the modern era. When mortality was highest, a blessing at the time of death was critical to the spiritual care of both the departing soul and the family that surrounded them. Now this sacrament is called anointing the sick, but functions in much the same way. We may carry with us a stereotype of medieval superstition and an excessive emphasis on the sacraments as a source of godly magic, administered perhaps by a literate priest to an even less sophisticated audience, but th this is far from the case. There's evidence that even in the most humble places, great care was taken in the administration of the sacraments. One document that supports this can be found in the Bodleian Library at Oxford. Visitatio Infirmorum was published sometime around 1050, likely at Worcester, and concerns priestly function in the Anglo-Saxon Church. The book spends considerable time on the relationship between priest and parishioner and offers advice to the priest in his sacred duties. Priests are reminded to be gentle and humble in anointing the sick and further reminded that healing happens with God's help alone. It seems highly unusual to have rubrics, notes for the priest, that quote scripture in an effort to instruct the priest on how to be more caring, but it shows an overall intent. During the Protestant Reformation, there were numerous voices calling for a reform of the office of priest to turn away from what was regarded as a low point in the history of congregational ministry. Now, we've already seen that the facts on the ground do not match the stereotype. But to give some credence to the reformers, there were plenty of priests more concerned with selling indulgences for Rome than caring for their people. Recently, we looked at the earliest reformer in England, John Wycliffe, sometimes called the Morning Star of the Reformation. He managed to avoid burning at the stake by a hair and wrote an important foundational work. Uh, in his book on the pastoral office, he wrote these words. There are two things, he said, which pertain to the status of the pastor, the holiness of the pastor and the wholesomeness of his teaching. He ought to be holy, so strong in every sort of virtue that he would rather desert every kind of human intercourse, all the temporal things of this world, even mortal life itself, 
before he would sinfully depart from the truth of Christ. Secondly, he ought to be resplendent with righteousness of doctrine before his sheep. You will see there the twin emphasis on correct doctrine, the lifeblood of the Reformation, and correct behavior. No longer were priests to hide out in the cloister, but engage their people, teach them the truth, be upright in every way. Now, finally, we've reached the modern era and the advent of psychotherapy. It may seem a gross oversimplification, but until the 20th century, the church was more concerned with the state of an individual's soul than the state of his or her mind. Psychotherapy, with an emphasis on healing the mind, particularly through the interaction between therapist and patient, eventually caught the attention of the church. Pioneers such as Richard Cabot and Anton Boysen began to link advances in clinical training of physicians with the need to provide clinical training for ministers. Through a program now called Clinical Pastoral Education, uh, clergy were trained to do pastoral care in a more rigorous way. Now, pastors are not therapists, but with a more intentional approach to pastoral care, we became better at assessing who needs a referral or an encouragement to go deeper. And more training in pastoral care allows pastors to train the congregation in their mutual care, mirroring the idea that we are all responsible for the well-being of others. There's obviously a lot more to say about pastoral care in the modern era, but you will find that it's revealed over the course of the next three episodes. So I'll stop here for today and invite you to look forward to our next episode, Pastoral Care in the Bible. Thank you for joining me.